Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, I am struck by both the the ease and the simplicity of the gospel proclamation and how incredibly hard it is to respond. We need your power to wake us up, to cause us to turn around and to follow you. And so, Lord, would you do that this morning? Would you break into hard hearts and hard lives that we would see the the mercy and grace of God on display and that it would cause us to turn around from our own ways and follow you? Lord, even if we are like the first who said, I will not, God, would you help us to go? And Lord, if we are like the second who said, I will go, and we did not go, help us to then become like the first and to respond in faith here this morning. Lord, your mercy is on display for prostitutes, for tax collectors, for the lost and the least. Um, And Lord, that's for us first here this morning. And so I ask that you would, uh, by your Spirit, make us alive. Help us to see, help us to trust, and help us to believe and heal us a little bit more today. We trust that you will do this uh, by the power of your word, by your goodness and grace alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My text this morning is Ezekiel chapter 18. If you'd like to open up your Bibles, I'll be in Ezekiel chapter 18. Now, I want to begin by asking a question, and it's kind of a serious question, and no, I'm not saying that tongue-in-cheek. This is a sort of, actually, this is a very serious introduction in many ways, but I'm specifically asking children this morning. Children in the room Here's the question, and I want to ask this question about your parents, all right? So we're getting into some touchy places here, okay? Here's the question. It's a big question, and I don't expect you to immediately have an answer, but here's the question. What have you inherited from your parents? That's a big question, okay? I encourage you to dwell with that. I would love to sit with you and think about that more. What gifts and graces have you received from mom and dad? Safety. You might think of safety or else food on the table. That's something we don't think about often, but most of us have food on the table. Faith, even. Resilience. A sense of humor. Warm hugs and kisses. You could go on. There's a lot of different things you could think about. What pain or else what kind of heartaches or trials have you received from mom and dad? Distance. Maybe that's physical distance. Maybe they're away from you. Or emotional distance. Maybe broken relationships is what you think about. Or the avoidance of communication. Conflict without resolution. Maybe there's pressure to, infor- to perform, whether explicitly or just sort of implied. You feel it. Or to act a certain way. Maybe you feel that. Or maybe you even feel abuse of any kind. What have you inherited from your parents? This is a tough question. Now let me turn to the parents in the room. You might have listened to this opening exercise with, at best, awkwardness. Like, oh man, that's awkward real fast for an introduction to a sermon. 
Thanks, Chris. That's real great. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to my lunchtime conversations now, or, or maybe worst, at, the, at your worst, you're, you might feel shame. Um, and this, this is actually an exercise that I do at premarital counseling. So if you want to get married, look forward to this exercise. It's called the genogram, and I'm just describing out loud what we do on paper. But parents in the room, forgive me for being a little bit cryptic at the start, but you are a child too. I think we forget this. I was addressing you, children, in the room as well. What have you, and I encourage you to maybe think about that question again, what have you inherited from your parents? The great, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Have you jo- what have you joyfully received and what have you spent the rest of your life running from? You're run- running away from a bunch of stuff. I don't want to be like that. I want to be like this. What are the thoughts and behaviors of mom and dad that you grew up hating? only to see those very thoughts and behaviors reflected in your own mirror or else maybe even in your own children back at you? This is a tough question. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, Ezekiel says. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. This is perhaps the most self-evident proverb in all of human history. This, so, dad, here, let me translate it for you. Dad ate a sour grape, and now I, his child, I taste his bitter choice. So he eats the grape, and I taste the sourness of his action, of the bitterness of his action, You could translate this in a lot of different ways. Mom was foolish, and I live in a home filled with foolishness. Or granddad was violent, and so was my dad, and now I can't seem to control all this hatefulness that comes up in my heart, and I've I've tried to push it down my whole life. This is what he's saying. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. The sins of the father have become the sins of the son, in other words. Ezekiel was a prophet in exile. He was not at home. He was a priest with no temple, no sacrifices, nothing to do in many ways. He was a husband, and we probably think he didn't have any children. Ezekiel was a son who received a pretty terrible inheritance from his father and his father's father's. And it was bittersweet. He actually received a lot of good instruction, and that's clear from his testimony in his life. But the fathers and the sum total of the inheritance was lacking. Born in the Holy Land, now he was homeless because of dad and granddad and so on and so forth. And just a few years after Judah was conquered and destroyed by the Babylonians, Ezekiel began to see things. He began to see things, shocking visions, terrible creatures riding on chariots made of wheels that have eyes that look at you on the wheels. Talk about strange wheels, right? This is the vision. And with these creatures, there were a lot of sermons that Ezekiel was called to preach to his exiled people, to all his brothers and sisters. God said to this son of man who had received a rotten inheritance from his parents, 
God told Ezekiel to eat this book, to eat this book, to write down these visions, to declare these judgments against my people. And so Ezekiel, in obedience to the Lord, this exiled son, he ate this bitter word of judgment. And to his great surprise, as he, as he took this judgment upon himself, as he ate this bitter word, it was sweet to him like honey. Go and tell the house of Israel what I tell you, whether they hear or refuse, or refuse to hear. Now Ezekiel, the exiled son, one who had kept the word of the Lord from his youth, he spoke these judgments upon the house of Israel like bread that was cooked using human dung. This is the language that he uses. Can you imagine cooking your food by burning human dung? Not, not a great meal. That's not bread that you typically want to eat. And this is what he fed Israel. It's a bitter judgment. But you can imagine how he felt. Why must I suffer for the sins of my father? Why must I eat bread that is unclean too, when from my youth I have never eaten any unclean, unclean food, he said. Even in the relentlessness and the, the, the series of oracles at the beginning of book, a book of Ezekiel, as Ezekiel eats the judgment for himself, he finds in little moments throughout the first 18 chapters that God is gracious to him. Even the bread that he eats, it's still a bread of judgment, but God makes his portion undefiled. And I won't describe exactly how it's undefiled, but it's still quite nasty, but he is no longer unclean. God shows him grace even in the midst of his exile. And Ezekiel 18 stands out in the midst of this series of judgments, of these oracles upon generation upon generation of sin. Perhaps this is maybe, and some scholars argue that Ezekiel 18 is unique in all of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, I, I don't think it's necessarily that, but it's a, very, it's a very important chapter. The Lord says to Ezekiel, this proverb, this proverb that we just heard, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children are reaping the consequence of what the fathers have done. This proverb, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Look, listen, he says, even this bitter judgment that you were born into, even this chaotic home that you did not build for yourself or else this bed that you did not make. Look at me, child, he says to Ezekiel and to the people of God. Look, your story is not over. I am the God of each and every soul, he responds, and I take no pleasure in your death, even now, Turn away from your sins, from your iniquity. Whether your inheritance was good or bad, it doesn't really matter whether it was bitter or sweet. The invitation is to turn to me and to live. Look with me at verse 5 of Ezekiel chapter 18, and we see hope for hopeless Ezekiel right here at the beginning. Verse 5, if a man is righteous and does what is just and right... At the end of the paragraph, after this long list, he shall surely live. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. So God the Father begins by addressing, I think, Ezekiel here. A righteous man, a priest father, 
Yes, Ezekiel, you are in exile. Yes, you have been born into dysfunction upon dysfunction. But listen to me, righteous son. You will not die because of their sins. You will not die because of their sins. You shall surely live. I see your thirst for righteousness, in other words, he says. Even now in exile, you don't feast in pagan temples. You don't worship created things. You don't defile your neighbor's wife. You live with your wife in an understanding way. You don't oppress anyone. You don't oppress anyone. You honor your debts. You don't rob people. You are very generous. You feed the hungry. You give generously to the poor. You don't live for money or for profit or pleasure. You are exceedingly generous, the Lord says to this righteous man. You are righteous. You are just. And I I hear this language of uh, Joseph, Jesus' father, at the beginning of the New Testament You are righteous. You are wise. You walk in my path. You keep my commandments. You are a just man. I promise, he says here at the beginning, you will live with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Fix your eyes upon me. Listen to my words and know that your soul is mine. No matter what you feel, drown out all the other noise around you and look at me and then, and then see how that is reflected in your own soul and your own choices. This is the model, even in exile, even in the midst of all of these judgments, pursue life and live. You need not be swept up in the flood of foolishness around you. So turning to the second paragraph in Ezekiel chapter 18, we see hope for hopeless parents. So we had hope for hopeless Ezekiel and now hope for hopeless parents. Look at verse 10. If, and he's speaking about this righteous man from the last paragraph, if a righteous man fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things. His son shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. This is how he ends the paragraph. You yourself might be righteous, and he starts in this paragraph, your son might still be a bloody sinner. Over and over again, blood is mentioned. This clearly goes back to Cain and Abel, or else the whole story of rebellious sons in faithful fathers' households or not. No matter who came before you or who comes after you, their behavior, your children's behavior, their response is not on you, he says to Ezekiel. If you yourself will pursue righteousness, you will live. But parents don't believe this. This is the hardest thing in the world to believe. Parents believe a lot of lies, but here's the biggest one. We think that if we are good parents, whatever that means, whatever that means or what do you feel about yourself today, whatever it means to be a good parent, then we will have good kids or else. And here's the more insidious flip side of that same coin. We think that if our kids are terrors, then we must be terrible parents then we must be the direct cause. So whether we're high or low, we find all of our value, all of our self-worth in the performance or righteousness of our children. And here's the point. We can hold, 
and this is really important, we can hold and teach what most of the rest of the Bible says about parenting. And let me summarize that for you. Fear the Lord and obey his commandments yourself, parents. Do that and teach your children to fear the Lord and to obey his commandments. And this will lead to joy for both you and your children. You've heard this before, right? Fear the Lord and fear him in his commandments. Listen to what he says, right? Teach your children to do the same and you will reap joy and the benefits of wonderful children. This is all over the Bible, but we can hold this, we can say that, and at the same time, we can declare and believe that the soul of my child is not in my hands. We can do this faithfully before the Lord and before our children and before the world. We can do this faithfully, and we can let go of the souls of our children. It's not on us. I don't have to worship my children. I don't have to find all of my hope on their successes and all my despair upon their sins. The souls of your children, parents, yes, even your violent sons, your murderous sons, or else your wayward daughters, their souls are in the, hand, in the hands of the Father, not yours. So that's the second paragraph. Third paragraph this is, for, this is hope for hopeless children. And I encourage you, children, you're a child. If you're, if you're here this morning, you were born, okay? So hear this for yourself. Look at verse 14 of Ezekiel 18. Now suppose this. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He shall not die, verse 17, he shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. We can be, and we should be, wide-eyed. We should be clear about the sins of our parents. This is really important. This is one of maybe the most important parts about growing up. We can for ourselves and we must get to the bottom of the lasting and lingering effects of generational sins that continue to torment us. This is a good exercise, but we don't have to be defined by them. This is what Ezekiel says clearly. We can lament in exile with the writer of Lamentations when he says, our fathers sinned and are no more. They're dead and we bear their iniquities. So we can say that. We can say that with wide eyes, with clarity that they're dead, but we're still reaping the iniquities, the the burdens that they heaped upon us, and at the same time we can declare, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. We don't have to be defined by the sins of our parents. I can tell you countless stories, and I know many of you can, 
of children who have drawn a generational line in the sand. Don't you guys know these people? They're all around us. Not for my children. Not for my house. I'm cutting that off. I'm cutting that off. Many of you can tell that story, and you should. I encourage you, tell those stories to one another. My parents drew a clear line in the sand. A generation-shaping decision to follow Jesus. I'm the recipient of so many graces because of them. Because of them. But my parents still had dysfunction and sin. Don't you guys know that? And here's the point. Whether your parents drew a line or they were completely wretched till the day they died, or they're still wretched and they're still tormenting you, you today are invited to draw a line for yourself. You don't have to be defined by your past or else your future. Your children choose righteousness today for yourself and live. This is Ezekiel 18. How can any of this be hopeful is the next question. It seems, again, even, even with maybe this turn towards mercy and I can't be cut off because of my fathers or else my children or something like that, you might be like righteous Ezekiel. You might be better or worse than your children or your parents, right? You might feel superior or lacking or whatever. It doesn't really matter. You're probably still saying, I'm struggling with this. So I'm struggling. I don't feel this as hopeful. Or if it's hopeful, it's so sporadic that I can't remember the last time I felt hope in relation to God's mercy and his judgment. And so I want to give you two ideas uh, from the end of this chapter to hang your hat on. How can we turn the corner to receive this for ourselves? The first is God is the kind surgeon. God is the kind surgeon. And I'm putting together two different phrases, uh, really familiar phrases actually, at the end of this chapter. Look with me at verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. Repent. This is what Jesus said. He, he shows up and he says, Repent, I'm here. I'm here. Just turn around. Just turn around. Turn and live. This is the second time that Ezekiel has said this phrase in chapter 18. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. So he's saying at the end here, pay attention to this key phrase. By repetition, Ezekiel is clear. He's clear from the start of this prophecy, Ezekiel chapter 1, all the way to the end, that God is holy. He is a holy and righteous God, and that sin is an abomination in his presence. But, and he says this over and over again, and here twice in Ezekiel 18, anyone, whether you're a wicked father, a wicked son, a wicked mother, or a wicked daughter, Anyone is implored to turn from their own way and live because I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked because of my character. I am not a God who delights in judgment. I desire 
that all people would be saved. We're going to hear that in just a few minutes. It's the same way to say the same thing. Some will say that this mercy of the Lord is unjust. And I think Logan talked about this pretty clearly last week. He showed us that this kind of non-justice, and I love that image. Do you guys have that stuck in your head like Logan got stuck in his head? There's justice, and you can go out of it in two different ways. One is non-justice, and one is injustice. God's non-justice, or else his forgiving us through atonement, mercy, justice satisfied on our behalf, this non-justice is the kindness of God to us. It is not unjustice. It, it, is, it is exactly what we don't deserve, but we can receive by faith here this morning. So God is kind. God is kind. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. But there's another important phrase right before this in verse 31. Cast away. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? A new heart and a new, new spirit. You guys heard that before? That's a pretty common phrase, isn't it? Well, it's actually not. It's actually not a very common phrase. But many of you are like me, and you're familiar with this phrase because of Ezekiel 36. And it sounds a little bit different there. Hear this later in Ezekiel's prophecy in verse 26 of Ezekiel 36. And I, this is Yahweh God speaking, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is, this is how we're familiar with this phrase. Now, this is a profound prophecy, so much so that this is one of the principal readings for our Easter vigil. If you're talking about Old Testament hope, Ezekiel 36 is one of those hot spots. It's one of those hot spots. God is going to give us a new heart and a new spirit. He's going to make us alive. But Ezekiel 18 says it a little bit differently. He says, make yourselves, make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. So which is it? Which is it? Here's my favorite answer. You guys love this? Yes, there's my answer, right? to a not yes or no question, which is it? Yes, God is kind. He is the kind surgeon, but in the beauty of his sovereignty, he invites us to be active participants in our own heart transplant. There, it goes together. There's always participation. There's always participation in this realm. How? How? How, does it, how do we participate in this? And it's simple and profound, and we need God's grace. And it's so simple, a child can do it. But it's so hard that the oldest and smartest person in the world can't do it without grace that comes in. Ezekiel 36, after the heart transplant of the new covenant, he says this in verse 31, Then, after this heart transplant, you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Or in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 21, if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. 
None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him, for the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Let me summarize it in one word. Repent, God is kind. He invites us in. He invites us into his good surgery room by faith and repentance. He gives us a new heart. This is clear. He gives us his spirit to dwell within us so that we can be obedient to his commandments. And at the same time, we participate in this good surgery by faith. By faith in the steadiness of his hand to do the work. And by our repentance. Turn away from your wicked ways. Loathe evil. Resolve to keep his statutes today. Repent. Repent. God is kind. He wants to cut it out of you and make you alive today. Daily turn away from your own way and come to him. And finally, you are not alone. You are not alone. You might be thinking that even that, even this simple command to repent, this action is too much for me to bear alone. And you would be right. You would be absolutely right. Ezekiel 18 is not, and here this, this is really important, it's not primarily a manifesto for our present day individualism. Okay, this is not a turn towards the autonomy of the self, or else it's only about me and Jesus. That's the only thing that matters in the whole world. Many of us, many of us really do believe even if we don't practice, that nobody else can tell me what to do. And that's because of this turn to self in our day and age, that nobody else can tell me what to do. I love Ezekiel 18. Uh, My parents can't define me. My children can't define me. Nobody can define me. Even God except me. I define myself. I define everything for myself. So this is right up our alley as modern individuals. But And there is certainly a turn to the self in many ways in Ezekiel 18. But this oracle doesn't stand by itself. And even within Ezekiel 18, it's clearly not really primarily addressed to all of us as individuals. Ezekiel addresses generational shifts, generational change. He repeatedly addresses the house of Israel. This is is a whole family or else a whole generation. Every exhortation in Ezekiel 18 is plural. So here's the point. Here's the point. How are we able to draw a generational line in the sand? How can we declare and really believe that I can hope in God and in his mercy no matter the dysfunction around me, no matter what I've inherited, what's behind me, or what's before me, Here it is. You can't do it alone. You won't do it by yourself. I promise. And all of this points us to the good news of the gospel. That Jesus Christ, not Ezekiel, he is the righteous man. He is the righteous son. And he drew a line in the sand. He began a new birth or else a new generation of the spirit by the Spirit, with faith and with repentance, in baptism, we individuals are born again through water and Spirit. This is, 
Ezekiel 36 coming together with Ezekiel 18, and it's all over the New Testament. We are given new hearts, adopted into a new family. We are regenerated. A new generation, people. We're born again. This is what the promise that is fulfilled in Christ. We are able to stand together. We're able to repent together in Christ. To lament and reform generational sin together. Without arrogance, without pride. To repent from our own sins and not the sins of past generations or else the sins of those crazy youth. What's wrong with those kids today? My sins, my generation, me, myself, us. We're able to stand together. Both individually we're standing together and together as a family. This is the promise fulfilled in Christ And even then, as we turn towards this, the individual, but as the individual is a part of something bigger than himself or else is a part of someone who is bigger than himself or herself, we can invite the next generation in. We can baptize them. And we can teach our children giving their souls to God. And this is what we're invited to do over and over again not trying to bear the weight of the next generation in our own strength, and certainly not our own. We need each other to repent. You are not alone. You cannot do it alone, so don't try to do it alone. Come, anyone, everyone, all of you, come and repent and believe and live today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand and let us confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed.